The only place that I can start is with the sad news of Shane Warne's death this week, aged just 52. The response from the Crickenton world has been immense, showing just the impact he has had on all of us that love this sport. My first real experience watching Shane Warne was in the 2005 Ashes series. Of course, I knew who he was already and I knew what a character he had, but it was in that beautiful summer of cricket that Warren would have his first impact on my love for the game. Admit it, you were one of those school children just like me, heading onto the playground at break time and trying leg spin, trying those Warren variations. Your mate was down the other end and doing his best Gilchrist impersonation. Bowling Shane. He was at the back end of his career, playing only one more Ashes after that series in 2005, but he was still incredible. He still topped the bowling figures for that series in England, and he could still chip in with the bat. He made 90-odd in the second innings that contributed to an incredible draw in the Old Trafford Test. It was evident, too, that Warren played the game in the right way. A competitor to the end, he still had the, de the decency to applaud rivals such as Andrew Flintoff, as Andrew Flintoff made centuries at Trent Bridge. He was still the best. And that's how we will be remembered. To those, the millions of us that were never lucky enough to play or meet him, but were lucky enough to watch him live on TV. To those millions of us that can never dream of playing at his level, but tried our best to imitate him and play just for the love of it. He was simply the best spinner to have ever lived. He was a joy to watch and a powerful voice in the commentary circles. He'll be missed in the game. Hello, it's me, Peter. And today, I'm talking to you about cricket. With the first test between the West Indies and England due to start on Tuesday, this podcast will discuss the England squad and predict how England will line up. First, I want to briefly turn your attention to two other test matches that are going on around the world. Well, one ongoing and one just completed. Let's start with the completed one. India versus Sri Lanka. And I think you only need to look at the scorecard to realise how one-sided this contest was. If you, if you call it a contest. India made 574 for 8 declared and Sri Lanka couldn't get past 180 in both innings. It was all done within three days and India have taken a 1-0 lead in the series. Of course, the man of the moment is Ravinder Dadeja who managed to become only the sixth man ever to score 150 or more and take a Fifer in the same test match. A shout out to Ravi Ashwin too, who is now the second highest wicket taker for India in test. Impressive. India are a very strong team anywhere they go, but at home they are practically impenetrable. They bat all the way down to Ashwin, and can replace men like Ajinkya Rahani, who is not in this team, with people like Shreyas Iyer. They have incredible squad depth. 
They also have a pick of not only quality spin, but one of the best quick bowlers in the world, Jasprit Bumrah. Sri Lanka, quite simply, do not have that same squad depth. They have some recognisable names, Angelo Matthews, uh, Lahiru Tirimani, and Dananjaya De Silva, but Sri Lanka do not have the overall first team talent as the home side do. They were always going to struggle away to India. But in the next test, they're going to have to look at the standout figures from this one, Patam Nisanka and Niroshan Vigwela, to continue to make some runs. Both of those managed to get 50s in this game. And meanwhile, close, in the first historic test in Rawalpindi between Australia and Pakistan in something like 20 years, we appear to be watching a game being played on what some would consider a road. Three days of play, six wickets falling, yeah, a road. You hope that the last two days will see the pitch deteriorate enough to bring the bowling back into the game just a bit. Specifically, you imagine the likes of Shajid Khan and Nathan Lyon will be hoping for this. If this pitch doesn't degrade, you can only imagine one result on the cards, let's be honest. I was surprised though that Australia chose only one frontline spin option. I know they have Steve Smith and Marnus Labashain and apparently Travis Head that they can chip in, but let's be real, they're not in that team to take wickets. It's usually the done thing for touring sides to bring two frontline spinners as an option for the subcontinent. Maybe the Aussies thought that Lyon was good enough on his own? Although it's a lot to expect from one guy, even if he is, good, is, is as good as Nathan Lyon is. Although now that I've said this, he's obviously and inevitably going to be taking a Pfeiffer in the next innings, right? Oh, oh, and before I move on to England, fair play to South Africa. After being absolutely smashed in the first test by New Zealand, they managed to turn it round and pick up a well-deserved victory in the second. My overall conclusion for that series? Why on earth did it not have three tests scheduled? So, let's get on to England. Last time England played a test match was in Hobart and, well, we all know what happened there. Let's not dwell on it. A lot has changed since January, though. Giles, Silverwood, Thorpe, all gone. Butler, Milan, Burns... Hamid, all gone. Controversially, to put it mildly, Anderson and Broad are gone too. England have a new look opening pair. Again, goodness me, I don't know how many times that has been said since the glory days of Strauss and Cook. Although Zach Crawley looked pretty comfortable at the top, of, uh, at the top in his short spell there during the Ashes. And he made a 50 in the warm-up for this series. Alex Lees, the other opener, will be a debutant on Tuesday, but comes to the side with bags of runs for Durham. Although if you're that kind of cricket fan that claims that the counter-championships is rubbish, then that won't mean a lot to you. I digress. I do think it's a gamble, though, that England are only bringing two recognised openers to the Caribbean. One of them a debutant as well. What if they have an absolutely awful first and second test and the series is still on the line. What if one gets injured? 
I guess the ploy is that by only bringing two openers, they get time and experience together at the crease. There is no other choice to. It's fine by me, <clears throat> but England have to stick with that. If it were up to me, Lees and Crawley now have this series and the whole summer ahead of them to convince that they are the opening pair for England. Opening the bat is a skill on top of just batting. The ball is at its newest, the bowlers are at their fittest, the game is more in the balance when you are the first people to take bat. And being able to do it well is not, being, is not helped by being in and out of the team consistently, or inconsistently, I suppose. Zach Crawley, Alex Lees, they need a chance to get time together at the crease. But next, we all know that Joe Root will go at three, mainly because he said so, but also because there's quite literally no one else that will do it. His average at three, granted, is more, is, is worse than it is at four, but Root has had such a positive impact on this side in 2021 that his value should be felt wherever he bats, and especially considering that most of the time he batted in 2021, he was coming in with 20 minutes of play gone. Let's be real. Root knows that he is the best we've got. And now, more so than ever after what happened in the Ashes, he clearly can't trust that if he doesn't get the runs, there will be someone that does. Or maybe not. Maybe not. Maybe Johnny Bairstow would like to argue otherwise. A hundred in Sydney, a hundred in the warm-up, Bairstow is actually in good test match form, and you expect him to bat at six, and by golly I hope he gets to stay there. Don't move him up, don't move him down, or give him the gloves and then take them away again. I feel like a broken record at this point, because I've said this a hundred times, but it's clearly a passion point for me. Bairstow needs to be allowed to stay in one slot and stay there for an extended period of time. With the top three, and number six sorted, that leaves four and five in the batting order. Ben Stokes is almost certain to take number five, eager to prove himself, admitting that he felt like he had let his teammates down during the Ashes in Australia. He may feel this way, but in my eyes that was far from the truth. He was short on fitness, short on form, short on match sharpness, and therefore completely mismanaged in the Australian campaign. Think back to that time in Adelaide, where he was the enforcer, bowling over upon over upon over of short balls. That was mismanagement as a glaring example. You hope that some time away from the limelight, some time away from the team, a few more months of recovery, will be seeing Stokes back to somewhere near his best. This leaves four. Realistically, this is a fight between Ollie Pope and Dan Lawrence. My money, personally, would be on Lawrence due in part to his start in the warm-up game and then the score, the 50 that he scored in it. Furthermore, Pope has such a disappointing tour of Australia that his stock is surely perhaps on the decline. For now, I, I like Pope. When he is in form, he's so good to watch, but he needs to get back to Surrey and work out a few of the technique issues, particularly around his off stump. Ben Folks will be at seven, and I can hear you all cheering in relief. Folks is an exceptional wicketkeeper, and he has never done a lot wrong in an England shirt, 
and yet seemingly has never got a true run in the team. I think it's probably because of Joss Butler's contribution, and now that he is unlikely to play Test cricket anytime soon, and Bairstow batting at six, and probably not taking the gloves anytime soon, this could be Folks' opportunity to take a, or stake, should I say, a more permanent claim for the gloves. The pitch and the weather conditions will ultimately have a say on England's bowling attack, but I would predict one man who is likely to play all three games will be Jack Leach. Yes, I know Root clearly doesn't trust him that much, but the ball will spin in the Caribbean, and he is our one and only experienced frontline spin bowler in this squad. If it's an absolute spinning rager, Matt Parkinson should play. I've only really seen him, seen him in the 100, but from what I can see and what I've seen of him, it's clear that he can have a big part to play for this England team. Um, whoever England look to for spin, though, I just hope that Root goes on the attack just a little more than he did in 2021, particularly early in the time of the spinners, um, spinners' time at the crease. What is the point of introducing Jack Leach into the attack and then immediately putting men all out on the boundary? He has to show some aggression, give Leach some confidence that he's going to take wickets, give Leach an opportunity to take wickets by putting men around the bat. I can imagine England will look to Chris Wokes, Ollie Robinson, Mark Wood to support Jack Leach with the ball. Root will hope that Leach can bowl with enough control and keep the overs ticking to allow his quicks to rotate around. Especially considering that Robinson's and Wood's well-known fitness problems are rooting and rearing and showing their heads again. Both have suffered difficulties in the warm-up, allowing Saki Mahmood and Matthew Fisher a turn in the team. Unless Wood and Robinson continue to have problems though, I can't see Fisher getting much game time. This is perhaps a tour for him to be experiencing part of that England setup, and it's quite common to see young English bowlers do this. I would quite like though for Mahmood to get at least one test, maybe the middle one to allow Wood some recuperation time. With Jofra Archer and Ollie Stone long term injured, it's worth seeing and developing Mahmood's express pace now. I don't need to say a lot about Wood, uh, he's, he's great, and he's basically the only Englishman that left Australia with any modicum of respect in After the Ashes. Wokes. Meanwhile, Wokes abroad is a completely different animal to Wokes in England, um, but he will be expected to lead the line. He will also be expected to chip in with runs, and to his credit, this is something he did mostly successfully whilst in Australia. Oh, and Overton! <laughs> I actually genuinely almost forgot about him. I guess he's there to substitute Wokes or Robinson? I can't honestly work out how he's in the squad especially considering that he didn't even get a game in the shambles that was the Ashes. He tours, but Anderson and Broad don't? Madness. But that's for another time. And, anyway, that is all from me now. Thank you for sticking with me, and thank you for sticking through this podcast, and stick, thank you for sticking with the channel. Please like, subscribe, hit the bell for notifications, comment and share me far and wide. You know you want to. Check out my Spotify, check out my Twitter for more, and until next time, sports fans, bye!